Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John's Gospel in chapter 10, because our scripture text comes from this very chapter, and it in, indeed, it includes those verses we just read. John chapter 10, and starting in verse 11 and reading through verse 30. And perhaps you didn't bring a Bible, and if that's the case, you might find one in the pew back in front of you, and you might not, so I hope you do. Hear then, church, the word of the Lord. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of, the, of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me then? Gracious and mighty Heavenly Father, you are good beyond all thought or comprehension. You are just in all your ways and you have showered all of your creation with your kindness and your mercy. You are slow to anger and patient with man. And though the world was set in rebellion against you in love, you sent your son into the world with the mission of turning rebels into saints into your children. And this he did by his perfect life and willing death on their behalf. Indeed, what great love is this, that for those who receive him, you have given them the right to be called children of God. Christ has accomplished their salvation from start to finish, and they exist to the praise of your glory and grace. And for all of this, we praise you and we thank you this morning. 
Now then, we come to you in faith, knowing that you are a God who exists and a God who rewards those who seek after you. Give us wisdom and sanctify us by your grace. By your spirit, may we grow to love the things that you love and despise all that you despise and all that is evil. Work in us by your spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For those who are here, Lord, who struggle to sense your presence and love in their lives, may their attention become captive to the work of Christ on their behalf. And we pray that you would give us a heart, Lord, to function together as one body, eager to give to those who are in need, willing to weep with those who weep, all the while rejoicing together in the joy of our Savior and our God. And now as we turn to your word, I ask that the humble ministry of preaching be accompanied by the effective ministry of your Holy Spirit to the hearers, to the hearts of your people. And we ask it all through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and for all time. Amen. Jesus says these words that I just read in the face of both belief and unbelief. In this circumstance, he had healed a man who was born blind. But instead of what we might expect happening, instead of there being a large revival, a massive revival amongst the Jews and their religious leaders, and celebration that the Messiah had indeed come. Instead of that, there was a division amongst the people. The ones entrusted with leading God's people, that is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, for the most part, they had already made up their minds about Jesus. Miracles or not, he could not be from God because he violated their own standards of holiness, primarily that of doing anything on the Sabbath that was against their codes of conduct, that had identified certain things as work, certainly healing a blind man qualified to them as work. So Jesus responds with these bold and beautiful statements in John chapter 10 about himself and about his mission. And last week we looked at the first 21 verses of, of this chapter, at the metaphors he uses to depict his identity as the promised shepherd whom God would place over the sheep of his pasture that God had promised through the prophet Ezekiel. And so he says that he is the true shepherd of the sheep. And those who hear him and recognize him as the true shepherd are the true sheep. In other words, they're the ones who really, they're the ones in Israel who really belong to God. And that Truth is pictured for us in, as well in his other metaphor, his second metaphor, that he's the door of the sheep. He says, I'm the door of the sheep. In other words, he is the way to eternal life. He's the one and only way of belonging to the flock of God. And finally, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. As the true shepherd of the sheep, the true savior of God's people, Jesus is not like the hired hands who are hired to take care of the sheep but they run when danger comes. No, the sheep belong to the good shepherd and he lays his life down for them. He's the good shepherd who gives himself, even his life for the protection, for the care and the well-being of the sheep, of God's people. 
Now, you may wonder why Jesus would say these things in the face of such opposition, such unbelief, such hard hearts like the Pharisees had. You know, it's hard to imagine that his words would suddenly convince them that he is indeed the Savior, the shepherd of the sheep, and that they were, in fact, the ones who were the hired hands. They were, in fact, the ones who were like the thieves that came to steal and destroy the sheep. But perhaps his concern was not convincing the Pharisees with compelling arguments. Perhaps Jesus' intent was to reveal to those who believed and who would believe, like us, wonderful truths of how he cares for his own and how he saves his own by his self-sacrifice for them. Now, that's why we've come back to this passage again today, because I want us to examine, I want us to consider what it means that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. So then, our first observation is this. It may seem obvious to us, but everything follows this, so we need to establish this first. And that is that when Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he is speaking of his death on their behalf. He's speaking of his death on their behalf. So his original hearers, when, they, when he said this, they may not have understood what he said. Surely his disciples would have put together the pieces after his resurrection. But when Jesus says, when he spoke of laying down his life for the sheep, he wasn't just speaking of a willingness to go to the extent of self-sacrifice if necessary. You know, when he's comparing himself to the hired hand, he's not just saying, I'm unlike the hired hand because I'm willing to do whatever it takes to care for the sheep. He doesn't just say, I'm willing to lay my life down for the sheep, but he says, I lay my life down for the sheep. So he's speaking of what he will do for the sake of the sheep and what must be done because of the Father's will, because it was what the Father had charged him to do. In fact, the reason he gives that the Father loves him, or we might say is pleased with him, is not that he has a willingness to lay his life down for the sheep, but that he actually does it. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. So Jesus is speaking of his intention, his purpose, his mission, what he is going to do, that as the good shepherd, he comes in order to lay his life down for the sheep. He has come to die for them. It isn't a hypothetical proof of his love. I would do that if necessary. If I must die, then I will die but I have come to die. He's speaking of definite future action that will demonstrate both his love for the sheep and his obedience to the heavenly father. Now, one of the benefits to the readers of the gospel is that when we come to Christ's death on the cross, we've already heard of Jesus himself, or we've heard from Jesus himself that this is what he has come to do. When we come to the cross in the gospels, we don't say, oh my goodness, how did this happen? How could God let this happen? We should say, the, the, the astute reader of the gospel should say, well, Jesus himself has given us heads up that this is what's coming. 
Now, in many ways, the rest of the New Testament expounds for us what the death of, of Christ on the cross means. In many ways, when you read the rest of the New Testament, the epistles and all the letters, they're expounding for us what it meant that Jesus died on the cross. But the gospels aren't silent on that matter. Christ himself told his followers that he would willingly lay down his life for the sheep. In other words, he would do, he, he would do, he came to do it and he willingly did it. That as he says in Mark and Matthew's gospel, he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. And that leads us to ask the question, what does his death for his people mean? Or to put it back into the metaphor, how does the shepherd's death save the sheep? In real life, that's hard to imagine, and this is where metaphors always break down at some point, right? But how is Christ's death, how is the shepherd's death salvific for the sheep? How does it save them? Well, the answer that Scripture gives is that Jesus died as a sin-bearing substitute for his people. In other words, we could say it this way, he died in their place and for their sins. Now, approximately 750 years before Jesus was born and came onto the scene, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the servant of God, the Savior of Israel, who was to come. And he says in Isaiah chapter 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And listen carefully. And the Lord Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. Jesus says, as the good shepherd, I lay my life down for the sheep. And this is what he means. He means that he is the one who would be wounded and would be crushed for the sins of his people. That he would lay down his life and the Lord would lay on him our iniquities. And it's to this very thing that Jesus spoke when he took the cup at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he said in Matthew's gospel, for this is my blood in the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Who are the many? They are his sheep. Those whom the father has given to him. All those who hear his voice and follow after him. And what was the pouring out of his blood for? Why did he have to die? It was the, for the forgiveness of their sins. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see the language of substitution that Peter is using there. Jesus, in other words, he's saying Jesus died in our place for our sins. He suffered in our place. He was the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. And he died that we might be forgiven and might be made right with God. That's what Peter is saying, that he might bring us to God. Paul says in Romans 5, 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
since therefore, he says, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Scripture is clear that the death of our Savior was not just simply him showing us a better way. In other words, the way of self-sacrifice versus the way of violence or the way of love versus the way of hate. The cross wasn't primarily exemplary. The death of Christ was him laying his life down in the place of his sheep to be their substitute, to take on their sins, and to save them, as, as, as Paul says in Romans 5, to save them from the righteous wrath of God that was on them for their sins. Now, in modern times, some have questioned this teaching, saying that, well, saying two things. One, that the Bible doesn't teach this idea of substitution, that Christ was our substitutionary sacrifice. Also, though, saying that the church, not only does the Bible not teach us, the church didn't teach this until much later in history, perhaps not even until the Middle Ages, latter half of the Middle Ages. Well, when it comes to what Scripture teaches, it's clear that Jesus did die as our substitute, as we have already seen. Peter says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Paul says in Romans 5 that we are made right with God by the death of Christ for us, that we would be saved by him from the wrath of God that was on us. He says in chapter 3 that his death, Christ's death, was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God put him forward as a propitiation for our sins, is what the ESV says. The Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John 4.10, where by the Spirit, John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his sin to be the propiti- sent his son, sorry, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation, it speaks of sacrifice that satisfies the righteous demands of God. That's what propitiation means. It is a sacrifice. It is atoning. It is satisfactory. It is satisfying to God. It appeases God. The holy demands of God. Now you say, but okay, Chuck, well maybe that's what Scripture teaches. But what about the whole claim that this teaching didn't come into the church, that the church didn't teach this until later on? Well, listen closely to an excerpt from a letter that we have. And this is from the second century called the Epistle to Diognetus. It was an apology written for the Christian faith. That is a defense of the Christian faith. Now I want you to listen for that substitutionary language that Jesus died in the place of his people for them, for their sins. Listen carefully. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. That is there, Jesus Christ taking upon himself the burden of our sins. He gave his own son, God gave his own son as a ransom for us. The whole idea of ransom is that there was a price to be paid for the slave. If the slave was to go free, there was a debt that they owed. There was a price for the slave, and the debt and the price had to be paid. He gave his own son as a ransom for us. The holy one for transgressors 
the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and the ungodly, could be justified, that is, made right with God, that by the only Son of God? And then listen, oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefit surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of the many should be hid in the single righteous one. And that the righteous one should justify many transgressors. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And that means that his death on the cross was for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed says. For us, he came for us and for our salvation. And our salvation from the wages of sin in order that we might be reconciled to our creator God and that he might be our father. And what wonderful news that is for those who know themselves to be sinners, know themselves to be wretched, sinners, wicked, unrighteous, corrupted, and in need of an incorruptible, righteous, perfect savior. For all those who know Christ as their shepherd, you can be assured of this, that Jesus died for you and his death was all sufficient for your salvation. Which brings us to our next observation in the meaning of his death. His death was an all-sufficient sacrifice for us. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep, and we have established that he was speaking of his sacrificial, willing, substitutionary death for them. But was it enough? Would they need something more than Christ's death to gain God's forgiveness? Would they need to make an additional sacrifice or add some righteousness, some merit of their own in order to be reconciled to God, forgiven of their sins? Well, to answer that question, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. But first, I want us to notice what Jesus says in verse 27. It's part of our memory verses. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And before this, he explained why some of them didn't believe. He said, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. You're not my flock. But then on the other hand, he says, my sheep, they hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And listen carefully. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my my hand. My father who has given them to me, who are the sheep there, the ones the father has given to him, he is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So first of all, Jesus says he lays down his life for the sheep. Then he tells us that it is to his sheep, to the ones that the father has given him, to the ones who follow after him, that he gives eternal life and they will never perish. And the connection, that, the connection that we should make is that the son gives up his life for the sheep and to those sheep he infallibly and he conclusively gives eternal life. Their eternal life is a gift from the son that is, 
it is accomplished completely and wholly and perfectly by the Son through his death for them on the cross. So what I'm trying to connect for you is that he lays his life down for the sheep and it is for the sheep that he gives them eternal life. And how does he give them eternal life? By laying his life down for them. He lays his life down for them and he perfectly, infallibly, and conclusively gives to them eternal life. Now look, if you have Bibles, you can turn because we're going to read a larger portion in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Look at what Hebrews chapter 9 tells us about the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. 9 chapter, chapter 9 verses 22 through 28. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There we go again. I'll just go back to what we said before. Christ's death being for our sins and for the forgiveness of our sins, in our place, for our sins. You just can't escape the fact that the people who say, well, let's stop making the death of Jesus about the wrath of God and the holiness of God and the justice of God and our sins and all of that and, and that it purchased our forgiveness. Let's, let's stop talking that way. It was just exemplary. You have to get around the fact that the Bible is constantly, and we talked about the cross of Christ, it's talking, constantly talking about for us and for our sins and constantly talking about things like our forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these the sacrifices of the Old Testament never, never accomplished the forgiveness of sins. And then reading on, for Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things. In other words, Christ did not enter the temple that was made with hands and present a sacrifice to God there. The temple was the copy of the heavenly things, what was happening in the temple. He didn't enter into the temple, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Why doesn't he appear, why doesn't he appear a second time to deal with sin? Because the sin has already been dealt with when he offered a once and for all sacrifice on behalf of his people. And then reading in Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
When the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, his death was a sufficient payment for their sins. All that was required for their salvation, all that was required for their salvation was accomplished by him on the cross. So he doesn't just help people get eternal life. He gives to his sheep eternal life by giving up his life as an all-sufficient sacrifice for them and for their salvation. And that's why we sing, there's no deed that can redeem us. There's no right or magic word. Only by the work of Jesus can salvation be secured. And then what do we sing? It is finished. He has done it. So let your weary heart rejoice. Our redemption is accomplished. And when and where and how was it accomplished? In Jesus Christ, on the cross, on our behalf, once and for all. Now, the Belgic Confession, which was a confession that was written in the 16th, 16th century, was used by many of the Reformed churches in Europe, puts it this way. It says, for it must necessarily follow that, all, that either all that is required for our salvation is not in Christ, or if all is in him, then he who has Christ by faith has salvation entirely. And then they go on to say, he is no half savior, but he's a whole savior. And therefore, all of salvation is in him. The London Baptist Confession, well, the 1689 Confession in modern English. The Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God. Not partially, not mostly fully satisfied the justice of God obtained reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. Sound like some of the verses we just read? He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. In other words, what does this all mean? Well, in other words, Jesus really and truly saves his own he really saves. He died for them, and in so doing, he purchased their salvation, and he secured their salvation on the cross. His death was all sufficient for their salvation, so that to them, to all the Father has given to him, he would infallibly give them then eternal life, and they would never perish. And what a glorious truth that is to those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who know the Lord as their shepherd, we can say, as the old hymn goes, the old hymn that I heard growing up all the time because it was my father's favorite hymn, and we don't even sing it anymore today. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming love, blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. He sought me and he bought me. Whereas the older hymn, even older hymn than that goes, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. 
He came and sought her from heaven to be his holy bride. And with his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. So then, brothers and sisters in Christ, lift up your head and behold the good shepherd who willingly laid down his life for you, that he might take it up again and then grant to you eternal life, perfectly, infallibly, irretractably grant to you eternal life. Everything that was needed, everything that was needed for your salvation and mine, Jesus Christ provided. He sought you and he bought you with his redeeming love. And guess what? He loved you before you even knew him. And all of your love, all of your love for him is due him. It was purchased on the cross for you by him. Okay, well then let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and that he infallibly and perfectly grants to them, gives to them eternal life, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful gift. God, we thank you that Jesus is our Savior and that he is indeed a Savior who saves. And we praise you and give you all the glory, even for our salvation, O Lord. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It was all of you and none of us. And we pray this in Jesus' most perfect and holy name. Amen.